Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6? We have been uh, going through this series. I entitled it, uh, Not Ashamed, because Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel because it was a power of God for salvation. It's really the most concise and comprehensive explanation that we have in the Bible of the gospel of God's grace. And so we're in chapter 6. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this chapter together? If that's uncomfortable, please don't feel bad about staying in your seat. But Paul begins by saying, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching in which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body to, in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we reflect this morning on this chapter that your Holy Spirit would teach and guide us, 
That, God, that you would give us uh, a capacity of understanding that exceeds our natural intellectual capacity, Lord, that we would hear your Spirit speaking into our hearts with a voice that's so clear and so concise that, God, we would know the truth and we might experience that liberating freedom that truth brings. Grant us your grace in this, Lord. We depend on your teaching us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin with a little bit of a review of to where we've been and, and where we are because chapter 6 really brings us to a whole new section in Paul's presentation. But we begin back in chapter 1 with Paul addressing what we would simply call the problem of sin. What is the problem of sin? Well, in chapter 3, verse 23, he summed it up by saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At the end of our reading today, he adds to that, this saying that the wages of sin is death. So this becomes our problem, that before you and I came to Christ, we were slaves. We were trapped in a stinking, sinking ship of sin on a sea of immorality. We were, as a consequence, he said, we were separated from God. I mean, we may have known of God, we may have acknowledged that there was a God, but there was no sense of being really vitally and really, truly connected to him. We knew of him, but we couldn't say that we knew him. He goes on, Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say that we were excluded from God. We were without hope and without God. In fact, one, one translation simply said, we were dead and doomed forever. But all that changed when we surrendered our life to Jesus Christ. In a way, as Paul repeatedly says in our reading, offering ourselves, offering ourselves. As we begin to come to this place saying, God, here I am. You can have me if you want me. And to our amazement, he wants us. And he wants us with an intensity. And so we received at that moment the promise of salvation. Again, we just read in verse 23 of the chapter that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And amazingly, all that we have to do to receive that promise for it to be fulfilled in our own life is what we read in Acts 16.31 when Paul addresses the Philippian jailer. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But there's an irony in a way in all of this because it's the very simplicity of that promise that's raised the most objections amongst Christians often even non-Christians. In fact, in Paul's case, it even rose to the place of accusation. Back in chapter 3, he was accused of basically saying, let's do evil so that good might be the consequence of it. And as he comes to the end of chapter 5, when he says, as sin increased, so did grace also increase, his critics are saying, aren't you really giving people a license to sin when you say sin increases, so also does grace increase? as a consequence. And Paul's response in this chapter is immediate and it's emphatic. He says, absolutely not. In fact, he would say, heaven forbids it. God would never allow it to be that way. For the power that, in, that saves us is also the power that sanctifies us. Now, sanctify may not be a familiar term for you, so let me explain sanctification, if you will, in its context. 
When the Bible talks about the effect of salvation, the effect of being saved, it really describes three steps that God takes our life through. It begins with what we've studied before about being justified, basically declared instant. And justification, which is that moment of salvation, is instantaneous event. It's something that happens all of a sudden. We don't get justified over a process of time. But when I said, Jesus, forgive me for my sins, come and live in my heart, I was declared justified. Justification happened immediately and completely and instantaneously. It was an event that happened when I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And in that moment, what happened was I was transformed from a sinner into a saint. Now, some of us, we hear the word saint, and we think of someone who has gone through this arduous uh, deification process or something. But the reality is, it says if we believe in Christ, we immediately become saints. A saint means a holy one, who is somebody who has been separated by God unto himself. And just by virtue of your association with him, you are a saint. I know your wife, your husband, your kids are looking and going, all right, no saint, I know. But you are, nonetheless. It's, <laughs> it is the title that's, that's on you right now. Your tombstone will have that, Saint Joe. It'll be on there. But what happens is that's an event that, for me, if I'm a Christian, is in the past. But when we move on to the present, that's where sanctification comes on. Whereas justification is an instantaneous event, Sanctification is a lifelong process. It's God conforming my sainthood into servanthood. It's where suddenly, I, as a saint of God, I begin to actually change as a person. As Paul would describe it in one place, I put off the old man, I take on the new man. Another place, it's taking off an old garment, it's putting on a new garment. It's this idea that this change takes place in my life, in my character, in just the entire trajectory and focus of my life because of the presence of God at work within me. And it's one of those things, essentially, what is the sanctification process all about? It's separating us to God to the place where we love God the way God loves us, and we love other people the way God loves other people. That's really what sanctification comes down to. And how do we respond to God? How do we respond to the people around us? It's evidenced by the degree or the process of sanctification, that separating of myself unto God. There is one last final step, and that's called glorification. And that, too, is an instantaneous event. It happens in a moment. Uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it requires your death. But it's the thing that transformed me from being simply a, 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 a person or a saint into the Son of God. It's when the perfection actually becomes real in my life. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he says, the, the perfect has not yet come, but when it does, and he's speaking about Christ coming, but essentially he's saying, we understand that none of us have achieved perfection. In fact, we have achieved something far less from perfection. And if you have trouble with that, just start with a, a where are you on a scale of one to ten. And I mean, most of us don't have the nerve to get past a four and a half. And so we realize that we fall short. We not only fall short before we know Jesus, we continue to fall short all the days of our life. But there is a moment in which God will glorify himself, and that is in the future, when I will be transformed and changed permanently. He says he'll give me a new body. 
And the, that body will have passions and desires, and you might even say it may even have driving lusts, but the lust of my flesh will be to do the will of God and maybe just to simply worship him day and night before the throne of God. So God says this is the process. You get justified, you get sanctified, and one day you will be glorified, the past, the present, and into the future. So at the moment I asked Christ into my heart, there began a, a, a spiritual gestation process. In the same way, I think that you can draw the parallel, because Jesus used the term being spiritually born again, I think that you can look at new birth as almost like the moment Christ came into me, something was birthed on the inside of me, and that thing began to grow. In the same way that a child begins to grow in a mother's womb, the child isn't growing because the mother is sitting and thinking real hard about growth things. Moms don't sit there and think, grow, 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 grow. I want a four-month pregnancy, not nine. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. It naturally gestates out of itself, becoming a child that eventually will exit the womb and enter into the world of man. And the same thing is really true, that death for the believer is not the end of life, it is the very real beginning. In the same way that a child leaves the limitations and the darkness of the womb and suddenly is thrust into a world that we call being alive in the fullest sense, that's essentially what God says. We are alive, yes, now, but one day we will be more alive than we ever imagined is possible to be alive. And that's why for the Christian that death is not the terrifying event of the future that we pretend is never going to happen and we don't want to think or talk about, but is the hope. It is the fact that I will put off the thing that limits me and I will take on that which will set me free for eternity. So that when Paul described, and I love how, one of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where he says, and we have this treasure in jars of clay, in jars of clay. <laughs> you know, my jar has lots of fissures and cracks in it. It leaks terribly. <laughs> and that's the wonderful thing. If a God is putting the treasure of his spirit inside of you, when you leak, what leaks out? Not just your ugly parts, but the glory of God at work in your life. But that, we begin to understand, is what the process of sanctification is. It's, as Max Lucado put it this way, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. That sanctification is God's process of revealing how much he loves you by the work that he is doing in you so that he might be able to effectively do a work through you in the world. Well, the question then becomes is how does God do that? And that's what chapter 6 really seeks to kind of illustrate and explain. But really, even though Paul doesn't start here, I need to start here because the place where that really happens, that sanctification begins, is, as we've talked about, with a new birth. In fact, Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1.3. He said, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now, sometimes we theologize those kind of phrases that they stop really meaning anything to us. But every mother and every father who has had the opportunity to see a child come into their life realizes what new birth really feels like. It is a whole new beginning of something very different and unique to that individual. But what Jesus said very simply was that you must be born again. 
He says, because flesh can give birth to flesh, but only the Spirit can give birth to the Spirit. He goes on, he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. He is born of the Spirit. So that Jesus uses a very familiar experience in the human world, the thing of a child being born, to illustrate in a way how God is going to bring people into his family. That we're born into the family of God. That we're born by the Spirit. That the Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And so that when I look at my beginning in Christ, I realize that something unexpected happened. In other words, when the pastor had me kneel with him in his front room and said, pray this prayer after me, I had no idea, not coming from a Christian family, I had no idea what, was, what I was to expect. I just knew there was this awkward moment. I, my friend had dr- said, do you want to talk to my pastor? I said, yes. He drove me to his pastor's house. He knocked on the front door. The man opened the door. First time I've ever met him. He invites me in. He shuts the door. My friend gets in his car and drives away. He leaves me there without escape. And so here I am sitting, and this guy says, why are you here? And I said, I think I want to become a Christian. Well, what does that mean? Well, you just pray this prayer. So he says, kneel down. So we kneel down and we prayed. And I repeated what he said. And I'll be honest, I don't think I even understood what he was saying. I wasn't even tracking what I was asking. But I just know that when I got up off my knees, something happened. Like the old hymn that says, he touched me. He just touched, in that moment I was touched by God, and I remember as I was taking that long walk home, because my ride had left, as I was taking that long walk home, I was suddenly suddenly saying, I know why I exist. I have found my purpose in life. And in a sense, that began to launch in the same way that a child comes into the world and begins to have this whole new experience every moment from that point to this point, 46 years later, continues to be a constantly experiencing new dynamics and dimensions of what it means to know God. That as many times as I've read the Bible from cover to cover, it's always a new experience. It's the one book that I never get tired reading. And believe me, I have books that I've read six, ten times. But that's one book I never get tired of reading because it's always new. Because, as the psalmist said, his mercies are new every morning. That every day, every morning, he's going to encounter you and me in a new and a rich and a fresh way. So that when you talk about that sanctifying process, it has to begin with that encounter. Because what happens oftentimes is we think we can give people information about God, and then we wonder why their life doesn't change. You can't expect regenerate behavior from somebody who's never been regenerated. You know, I don't go every spring and look at my maple trees and wonder how the apples are coming. I mean, it would be nuts, right, to expect apples off a maple tree, or maybe even better, peaches. (laughs) It's not going to happen because it doesn't have that root. But once you are born again, there is a root in God himself that begins to send spiritual nourishment into the branches of your life, and something begins to change. 
And you began to become a different person, not by observation and not necessarily by intentionality as much as the fact that you are rooted in him. So that when later on we get to chapter 8, Paul says, my prayer is that you would be rooted and grounded in God's love. You would know that beyond everything else because that's really where the vitality of a changed life comes from. But you see, with new birth comes, secondly, a, a new life. And Paul illustrates that by using the example of what ba baptism seeks to portray. He says, all of us were baptized, that is, if you're a believer in Christ, you were baptized into Christ Jesus, and you were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Essentially, the image, when you take a person and you lower them into the waters of baptism, you are doing it in the likeness of Christ's death. You are simply saying, the person I used to be is dead and buried. And when you raise them out of the waters, you're saying they've been raised as Christ was raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That the resurrected life is not something that I will experience when I die and leave this flesh. It is something that's at work in me and you right now. It is the thing that's setting up sometimes the victories, but even the conflicts that go on in us is the struggle of the resurrected life seeking to manifest itself through you against old habits. And he goes on to say that in that being raised into that new life, he says, if we have been united, literally to be made one with him, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united or made one with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. So here I have this new birth, and it's, it's resulted in a new life force moving inside of me. Something that I know that if you know Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, you might say, you might be even in a place where you're resisting that new life force in you right now, and it's creating struggles, but you know what it is. You know it's there. I often think about Peter when and the apostles, when Jesus had uh, fed the multitudes, and it said then the multitudes in John 6 wanted to take him and make him their king, and, and uh, Jesus you know, said to those people, he said, well, here's the deal. If you want me to be your king, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says many of them departed and stopped following after that point. A terrible church growth program on Jesus' part. He, he, he must have missed the seminar. But but then he turns to the 12. If this isn't bad enough that he's just lost a big crowd, he turns to the 12 and says, do you want to leave also? <laughs> and I love Peter's response because he says, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, what had happened inside of Peter in his heart and his mind that he could say, I mean, some wag could have come along and say, well, I'll give you some ideas. You can go back to Capernaum. You can take up your fishing business. I bet your dad would appreciate that. There's a whole lot of things that you could do, Peter. You could just simply go back to where you once were. But there's something about having that experience of Jesus in your life that ruins you for that old life. So that even if you try to go back to it, you go back to it, and it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. 
You know, it's kind of like going to your class reunion. You ever notice how those people have aged? (laughs) It's not the same. But with that new life also comes a new freedom. And Paul makes it very clear that before I was saved, I was a slave. How does he say it? You were slaves to sin. You, you were free from the control of righteousness. <laughs> that was me. I didn't like, let right and wrong get in my way. <laughs> I just did what I wanted. You offered the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? those things that resulted in death. You know, uh, Paul had said it before that if you sow to the flesh, the only thing that's going to get out of it is corruption. And that's really where we find ourselves. Because he goes on to say that sin was controlling you, you weren't controlling it. That's one of the great lies that we tell ourselves, that, uh, you know, I'm the master of my own fate, I, I control my own ship, I, I decide what my life is. No, you don't. You're controlled by forces and that are both external to you, but also, more importantly, things that are inside of you. They're the thing that make you step back someday and saying, why did I do that? And I hate myself for doing it. I remember when, when I was in the drug culture, and I, I just remembered ripping people off, selling them something other than what they were paying for, and afterwards sitting there and saying, I'm basically a very good and nice guy. Why did I just steal from these people? I remember it was a moment of crisis for me. I thought, wait a minute. I've just contradicted my own statements about myself. I'm not basically a nice guy. I'm basically a very selfish guy who will steal from other people just so I can get more drugs from myself without concern for their welfare. And that's why Paul says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So that essentially whatever becomes my choices becomes my master. And the more I make that choice, the more mastery that thing has over me. So that we would say that it becomes habitual. The the simple reality is it's just such a worn path that we just go back down that same path. So that finally Paul says, but Christ did something that no one else could do. He gave me a choice. Not to whether be to be enslaved or not, but a choice to who I'm going to be enslaved to. As Bob Dylan put it in his Saved album so many years ago, he says, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. That's the simple reality. You will end up serving something or someone, whether it's God or the pits of hell, but you will serve someone with the choices and the decisions and the directions that you make with your life. And that's why Paul says, though you used to be slaves to sin, you had no choice. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching which, to which you were trusted. In other words, you believed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Powerful, wonderful things. But here's the problem. (laughs) On the one hand, Paul says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
And yet he goes on to admit in verse 19, he says, but I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. See, here's the problem. I still sin. And I feel confident and safe sharing that with you because I know that you do too. Boy, do I know. No. <laughs> so, you know, just get that out of the way, okay? <laughs> I still sin, but there's a difference. When Paul says, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? We might put in there, parenthetically, how can we continue to live in it any longer? What do I mean by that? Well, in grammar, there are, there are what we call verb actions. And there's particularly two. One is called the punctiliar, and the other one is a durative. Fascinated yet? Okay. <laughs> Let me explain what that means. Well, punctiliar, actually, punctiliar comes from a, uh, a, a German word, punct, P-U-N-C-T, which means period. In other words, a punctiliar action is a very concise action. I did it. And then I did it again, and then I did it again. The durative is where we get our word duration. I did it, and I just continued to do it. One is momentary action, one is continuous action. Listen to how Paul or John uses it in his letter. He starts off by saying in 1 John 1 9, if we claim to be without sin, punctiliar sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you and I stand here or any place and simply say, well, you know, I used to sin, but I don't anymore, John stands up and says, liar! You know, it's just very clear. That's not true. You, you do sin. You will sin. You'll do it often and, and hopefully not too regularly, but you'll do it. It's part of your life. I mean, it's, it's really, when you really begin to understand the, the depths of sin and how deeply connected and rooted it is into human nature, you become aware of its presence with a regularity that's really uncomfortable because you find that it's hard to even look at another person without having some unloving, ungracious, ungodlike thought come into your mind. Can we talk? Am I here alone? Okay. I'll take that silence for deep conviction, right? Or total agreement. But when John talks about the durative, listen to how it's translated in, in chapter 3, verse 6. No one who lives in him continuously, constantly is living in him keeps on sinning no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. What he's not saying is that if you sin twice, you've, you've, you've broken the franchise and you're out of business. No, what he's saying is there's a difference that when we come to Christ, sin no longer becomes the defining behavior of our life and we begin to make choices every day to not sin. So that many times what happens is People in places like where I am behind this pulpit, we like to focus on those choices that you made to commit sin. And believe me, as a pastor, it's much more fun to talk about your problem in that area than is my own, right? But we talk about where you committed sins and the choices you've made. But what we often omit is the fact that if you know Jesus, you probably have made numerous and repeated decisions not to sin. 
You made repeated decisions to say, I'm choosing to forgive rather than to hold a grudge. I'm choosing to deny myself of an opportunity so that it might bless someone else. I'm choosing to give out of my ability and not out of my prosperity, but out of my ability because that's what God wants me to do. I choose to step into a conversation that may turn out to be unflattering to me and bring even the rejection and ire of other people, but I'm choosing to do it because that's what God is urging me to do it. And that dynamic is one of the greatest evidences that you're a child of God because you start choosing to change the trajectory, the path of your life And that's where you begin to choose on an ever-increasing basis, hopefully, to be defined as a follower of Jesus as opposed to being a follower of your own self. Those are really the choices. You just choose to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, I, I take the assumption that the vast majority of you are here this morning because you've chosen to be a follower of Jesus. Now, that may mean that some of you actually chose to follow somebody else. You know, whether it be a parent who says, you have to go, <laughs> or it's a really <clears throat> a very attractive young lady that you said, I'll follow her wherever she goes. Oh, it's church, dang it. But So, I mean, I I, I grant that that's a possibility, or just you may follow it out of just a love and affection and kindness for somebody else, but I hope and pray and believe that the vast majority of you are here because you said, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I just want to do things that are congruent with being a follower of Jesus. That's why I read my Bible. That's why I pray. That's why I'll talk to other people about my faith. Not because somebody requires it by me or it's part of the rule book. That's what Paul said legalism produces, that I'm doing this because that's the requirement. No, I'm doing it because I'm a follower of Jesus and where he is is where I want to be and I want to be as close to him as I possibly can. It's one of G.K. Chesterton in his, his marvelous book, Orthodox. He made the statement, he said, at the very heart of the essence of God is loneliness. And then he went on to explain, because God yearns to be with you. He yearns to be with you. And something happens where we begin to yearn to be with him. So that our life changes, not because we have this list of habits that we're going to break, or because we wrote this list of resolutions that we're going to keep in the next year. No, our life changes because we're simply following someone that's taking us in a new direction, a new path. So when I sat down with my parents as a new believer at 19 years of age, and I said, you know, I appreciate the fact that you've paid for my education and and all this other stuff. I thank you for all the stuff, the cars, the clothes, everything. But I can't continue doing what I'm doing. God is telling me to do something different. And as they looked with me with puzzlement and confusion, They just accepted that, and I just found myself going in a whole direct trajectory of my life that I never wanted. It was so strange that I'd been a pastor for 10 years before I realized it. I wonder why I always felt uncomfortable when people referred to me as pastor, because I wasn't even trying to be a pastor. It wasn't a career choice. It was just something that came as a consequence of following Jesus, 
And suddenly this love for God's word and this love to talk about God's word and this desire to see other people experience what I was experiencing in Jesus and in his word and in fellowship with other believers, it just takes hold of your life and you begin to become, in a way, redefined. So I remember at my 20-year reunion and I was asked to stand up and tell everybody what I was doing. I mean, you can guess at what my reputation was before I was a Christian. And when I stood up there and said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ, May 29th, 1969, and I've been a follower of his ever since. And now I happen to pastor a church. <laughs> it was, did I miss something? <laughs> But at that moment, I suddenly know, I realized I had perspective on me in a way that I'd never had it before, that suddenly I could look back and say, this is who I was, and this is who I have become 20 years later. Because oftentimes that change takes place in ways that seem so incremental to us that they don't stand out and shout at us. People aren't coming up to us every day and saying, man, have you changed? But all I know is after I, I left school and my, my brother was talking to my roommates and they said to him, you know, the moment your brother became a Christian, he just became different. And I thought, really? Because I felt like I was blowing it all over the place. I was stumbling and bumbling and I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian or what that all entailed. I mean... <laughs> Goodness gracious, the Jehovah Witness came to my door and said, you want a Bible study? I said, sure, come on in, let's talk. I had, a Jeho- I had a Hare Krishna guy I met on the street. I said, let's get together and have Bible study every week. That was fun. <laughs> I'm hitchhiking, a Christian science guy picks me up, and I says, I'm a Christian, are you? And he says, sure, I'm a Christian scientist. I said, praise God, and we have fellowship together. I had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, I was as clueless as clueless could possibly be, and yet there was something at work in my life that wasn't me. And I knew it very quickly, and it became evident to other people even more quickly. So what changed? Well, four things changed in your life when you give your life to Christ. Number one, there's a change of position. (laughs) John put it really well in 1 John 3, 2. He said, we are now the children of God. I was not a child of God. I mean, yeah, a son of Adam, yeah. Everybody's a son of Adam, a son of Eve, as Lewis would put it. Yeah, I mean, we all are made in the image of God. We are all created from the same uh, set set of carbon atoms that fills the world. Yes, we have that in common, but now there's a adoption into the family where you are part of the family. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, we no longer call him simply father, we call him Abba Father. Literally daddy. The most intimate personal way uh, in the Aramaic language a child could address his mother or, or address his father was to call him Abba. A Middle Eastern friend of mine told me that it's only when the father gets on his knees and invites the children to come and play with him on the ground that they can call him Abba. Could I have a crutch? (laughs) (laughs) That's why Peter said to us, you're not sinners any longer. You are 
a chosen people. The implication of the original language of this is that you're God's favorite. I always want to be the favorite. That not only that, he says you are a royal priesthood. That there's a, there's a, a nobility to your life that was not there before. That you're a holy nation. In other words, there's a sacredness to your existence that was not there before, that you are a people belonging to God, or as, the, as, as he's referring back to the book of Deuteronomy, you are God's treasured possession. You are that special thing that he ornaments in his living room for all the guests to look at and saying, isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it gorgeous? And with that, not only did he change my position in relationship to God, he changed my appetite Augustine put it so simply when he wrote in his confessions, I have tasted thee, and now I hunger for thee. I have tasted. The psalmist said, taste of the Lord and see that he is good. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, or maybe more literally, they will be completely satisfied they will experience that soul satisfaction. Blessed are those who start hungering and thirsting. You know, you, your appetite changes. It's, it, it, it moves from being the bitter taste that we once had to the sweet and the savory. Because as Spurgeon so well pointed out, he says, you may become so foolish as to try the pleasures of the world, but they shall no longer be a pleasure to you. In other words, it's that moment when Peter said, you become like the dog returned to his vomit or the sow to wallowing in the mud. And suddenly the dog looks up and says, what in the world am I eating? <laughs> and, I, and the sow says, what am, I, what, am, what am I doing? There's this moment of suddenly realization that I do have a choice, that I don't have to simply lick up the vomit of this world that's out there in abundance, but I can eat that which is good and taste and see that the Lord himself is good. Because you begin to learn very quickly, as Solomon warned in Proverbs 6, that can a man scoop fire into his lap without the, his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? You begin to learn from experience that that isn't so good. That isn't so pleasant. How is that working out for you? Did we not have that experience and did that not drive us in desperation to God when we tasted and tried the things of this world and came back sorely disappointed? It wasn't the way I thought it was going to be. It didn't work out how I wanted. That God changes my position, he changed my appetite, he changes my perspectives. When Paul says in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, the word count here is really, it's a, it's a word of fact and not supposition. In other words, it comes from adding up the numbers. It's a deliberate, factual conclusion. He says you need to change how you're looking at yourself. We sang that song at the close of our opening today, I am no longer a slave. He says, you come to this point where you're saying, wait a minute. In the song he sings, I am no longer the slave to fear. And it's that realization that despite the fact that there are fearful things in the world, despite the fact that there are things that I am afraid of, I am not going to be a slave of that. It has no right 
over me. It has no possession of me. I can actually choose not to live enslaved to fear. I can live enslaved to faith because I know God. I know who my God is. And when that perspective, when we start doing that math and our brain begins to think not as slaves but as freemen, much like hearing the story of, I was listening to a man who had spent many years in prison. He came out of prison. He said, even though I am no longer in prison, every morning I wake up thinking that I am. And every day I have to consciously tell myself I am no longer a prisoner. I can go where I want. I can do and eat what I want. And I can wear what I want. But I had to retrain my mind because I had been enslaved for so long. Suddenly we begin to have these moments of realization where we wake up thinking I'm just that same old stinking person I always went on. I'll never change, never be indifferent. And then all of a sudden you find something happening in your life and going, wait a minute, I never would have gotten out of bed and opened my Bible. I never would have wo awoken in the morning and found the first thing I did is start to talk to God and ask him for his help and his guidance. Something has happened on the inside of me. And let me say to you that if that, that kind of dynamic isn't going on in your life, you probably have never known him. You probably haven't been born again. You know of him, but do you actually know him? As that perspective changes, the final thing happens is your purpose in life changes. There's certain things Paul said. He said, start doing these things. Start offering yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to light and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Paul would later say in chapter 12, again, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer, to present your bodies as living sacrifice. That is what worship is, he goes on to say. But notice the operative verb there, offer. It doesn't say, so strap on your boots and tie on your weapons and go out there and start waging battle. No, he says, just begin by saying, Lord, I'm available. I'm available. That's all you can do. Chuck Smith used to always say, God is not so concerned about ability as he is with availability. That God, I'm available. Today, Lord, I want to offer myself to you. And if you can find a place and a way to use me, then, then I'm available. Start doing that. In contrast, he says in verse 12, therefore, no longer let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey all of its desires. The word reign there literally means, it, it comes from the root word in Greek for king. It means to exercise kingly power, to exercise the highest influence, to be the controlling factor in your life. No longer offer yourself, he goes on to say, the parts of your body to sin as instruments, literally implements or tools or weapons of wickedness, but rather you begin to offer yourself to God. And as simple as that may seem, that's where change takes place. The prayer that I take from Jesus' uh, lesson on prayer, that I pray over myself and loved ones every single day is, Father, deliver me from temptation and keep me from the evil one. Lord, I, I offer myself to you today and deliver me from my habits. Deliver me from that 
programming that I grew up with, that I was shaped by, the sins of the fathers that go from the third to the fourth generation. God, deliver me from that and let me no longer call any man on earth my father or look to any human entity as being the significant other that shapes and molds my, my being, but let me instead make you the significant other in my life. Do you understand the concept of significant other? It's a psychological concept. It's, it's true. It simply says that whatever you focus on, the, the kind of behaviors you focus on, even ones you hate, you will eventually begin to imitate because you focus on them. And that's why Paul would say to the Philippians in chapter 4, whatever things are good or lovely or true, <laughs> full of good fruits. Think on these things, he said. Don't think on all the other things. So we were having a, Jesse, Luke and I were, were having a little bit of a political conversation in the green room to prepare our hearts for worship. <laughs> and I just, they were sitting there, I just thought, you know, uh, the, finally, I, finally I, I became spiritual. And, and I just said, you know, the reality is the darker the world gets, the brighter the light shines. I'm going to focus on the brightness of Christ and how he shines, that you see you know, things getting darker and darker in our world, and you, it's, it's upsetting, you know. Of course, the Zags did win, so that helped. But <laughs> it's upsetting. Boy, did they win. Anybody see that? Oh, man. <laughs> Made me proud when they said Spokane. <laughs> Gonzaga from Spokane. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, you, you choose to focus on certain things. And God says, you know, you don't have to choose the dark, the negative, the ugly. It's going to be there. <laughs> it, you can't, it's going to be there until Jesus comes and fixes what's broken in the mains, in the hard drive of this world. But what you can focus on is the fact that the darker it gets out there, the brighter Jesus shines. That what we're about is letting people know that you can change. You can change. Everybody, every person I've ever known wants to change. Has no idea. So we just spend our life switching uniforms, <laughs> changing costumes, and hoping that this costume change will present a new me. And it does until you have to take it off and then no it's you again no Jesus can change you in here Father God I pray in the name of your precious son Jesus and all that he has done for us that God that we would be people who would begin to see ourselves in the light of your redemption in the light of what Paul spoke of in this chapter that we are no longer the slaves of sin that we are no longer those who are excluded from God and without hope and without God. We are your children that you redeemed and your life is living inside of us. And even though we struggle and even though we become afraid to just let you have your fullness in us, Lord, we come to you in absolute surrender in this moment and say, Lord, have your way in my life. We want to be with Isaiah who simply said, Lord, take me. Use me. 
We want to be that people who are just offering ourselves to you, God. I pray for those amongst us who may not know you yet, have never taken that step. And I pray that, Lord, right now your Holy Spirit would be just stirring something deep on the inside that would just be a yearning and a craving and a desire that they would know in the depth of their being that this is what's been missing. They've knocked on a lot of doors and been disappointed by what they saw on the other side. But you said that you're knocking on our door, not the other way around. That you're coming to us and you're knocking on their door, their heart right now, and all we need to do is open that door and invite you in and we'll immediately become family. Lord, I pray that you'd give all of us the courage to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you know the drill. We're going to continue on with a few more choruses of worship just to give us an opportunity to absorb whatever it is that the Spirit of God may have been speaking into your heart today. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, we, we have the elements of communion available if you're a believer and we invite you to partake of them. But also we're here for prayer as well. And if you want someone to pray with you or for you, you don't have to give a lot of detail. We're not, you know, we're not into <clears throat> necessarily having to know everything, but we do know that when two or more agree on touching something, God promises that he will move. And every week, I mean, I get the blessing and the honor of talking to people who said, you know, I came up for prayer and we prayed over this thing and God did this most amazing thing in my life this week. He, he's waiting to do that. God is waiting to move in your life in that way. If you don't know Jesus, he, he's right here right now, and he's waiting for you to invite him. So come up here, and we'll pray with you. Or if you have a friend or a family member who came with, and I'm sure that they would be thrilled over the moon for the chance to pray with you. Not to prove that they were right and you were wrong, but just because they understand the struggle, they understand the battle, they understand the journey, they understand what it means to come to that moment and to step across and say, Lord Jesus, here I am. So I really urge you to respond to his call upon your heart today.